Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am very happy to have back on the show Neil Levesque, the executive director of the St. Anselm Institute of Politics, which puts out the St. Anselm's College poll. It is something that we always want to come back to on this show because it's one of the most carefully thought out, well done polls out there. And it really gives us a lens into not just what's going on in New Hampshire, but also it's a great barometer for what's going on, the atmospherics politically in the country. So, Neil, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure to have you and always a pleasure to dig into your poll. When the fine print of polls, you always see all those numbers, all those percentages, and they relate to how many people you're surveying what your method was, and what the margin of error was. And I just want to point out to all our listeners before we get into what you actually found, that this is a poll of an unusually large sample, and it's done via a very careful method. Absolutely. So usually, let's say if you really wanted to get a good poll out of New Hampshire, you'd you'd test about 600 people, and you could get good results. In this poll, we have 1,898 So 1,900 people uh, have been tested. So it brings down your margin of error. Certainly, you get a lot of responses, fit a lot of people into different demographics. And so our polling right now is this poll shows a 2.3% margin of error. So we feel very confident about these numbers that we're producing right now. Now, keep in mind that I'm going to go through these things. and, And as you and I both know that elections are held on election day, not when the snapshot of the poll is taken. And campaign managers, they manage these campaigns so that the end date is on election day, not when we're polling. So there could be a lot of things in motion that we don't know about or that are going to be coming down the pike that could definitely change the trajectory of these of these numbers. And so this is just a snapshot right now in time as, as the New Hampshire respondents provided data for us. So happy to go through this. It's, it's, it's interesting because through COVID and in particular since our last poll, which was in March, I hate to say this because it's a little sleepy when I say this, but things are rather the same. So Exactly. Seen- exactly. That's, a, that's the number one thing that jumps out to me. And, and it, it, it's the word stable. Absolutely. And so what isn't stable? Well, we've seen gas prices go way up, kind of drop down again. We've seen inflation, interest rates go up. We've seen an enormous amount of political money being spent in New Hampshire on advertising, on different campaigns. We've seen a lot of political activity where people are going out and meeting voters or showing up at certain things. So there's certainly a lot of that in a very small state. And yet, we see that basically a lot of the numbers that we we tabulated in March are the same, particularly the big the big one here. They're not exact. All these things are not exact, but generally we're very close to the margin of error. 68% of registered voters believe the country is on the wrong track. Now that is poison if you're an incumbent. 68% of people. Now, that doesn't mean that 68% are going to vote against incumbents because as you and I both know, you could be a very liberal person, let's say, and you could say, well, Biden is not doing enough on, let's say, climate change. And therefore, 
I think the country's on the wrong track because we're not doing enough on that issue. That doesn't mean that that liberal person isn't going to vote for a, a liberal candidate. It means that right now they don't think that the country is going in the direction that they want it to. So we see that number and we see an overall feeling amongst incumbents, particularly the president, but all of our incumbents. So all of our members who are Democrats, all four members of the congressional delegation, we've seen their numbers really, they're upside down. And on the one that really matters, I think, is Senator Maggie Hassan, who's at 44% positive to 51% negative. And for all of our national listeners who may be a little bit less familiar with, with Senator Hassan, she is she is in what is quite possibly the number one race in the country. This is an absolute must get for Democrats. It's a must hold. And for Republicans, I mean, Republicans have more roots available to take over the Senate because Democrats are defending more seats. But if they don't win this one, it's a lot harder to see them taking control of the Senate. So this is this is, as you say, a, a really critical set of numbers. This is a number that Charles Schumer certainly is knowledgeable about and, and focused on. But we've seen that since March, she went down two points. So if you look at this and you say, boy, she spent people on her behalf or her own campaign have spent an enormous amount of money. Some people say as much as $40 million. And she's actually gone down in the polls by two points. That's bad for her. Now, obviously, it's not great. But I would say overall, I think that this poll is good for Senator Maggie Hassan and the Democrats nationally. And this is why. The, the wrong track is there, 68%. Her numbers are upside down by seven points. That's not good. But let's look on the other side of this. What is the issue she's going to really be running on? Abortion, which I know that we're going to talk about in a few minutes here. That is definitely to her advantage. So you've got an issue that's out there that's going to be to her advantage. And then you've got the idea that we have a U.S. Senate Republican field who they there, there is a leader of the Republican field at 32%, retired General Don Bolduck at 32%. He doubles the 16% that the second highest ranking Republican in New Hampshire, the Senate president, receives. So we have this retired general who's really, he's speaking, he speaks a lot like former President Trump, very similar on the issues and the way he approaches things. He has very, very little money. And he has said some things that I think that Democratic campaign consultants are salivating over the mm. chance of running in a general election. So you combine the fact that Hassan has an issue that she can really run on that voters care about. And she has a potential opponent right now that doesn't have resources and has said some things that may not be palatable to the general election crowd. Before we dive further onto either the abortion issue or the specifics of the Hassan race and kind of what it says about the, the trajectory for the U.S. Senate in general. I just want to stick with the overall atmospherics. One of the smartest consultants I know is constantly asking challenging groups that are that are working on, on, on issues with the question, what's our story here? And it really is important because 
we all like to kind of fit a general narrative. And one thing that's struck out to me in looking at your polling numbers is you have survey results from August of 2021, October of 2021, January of this year, March of this year, and now August of this year. And we said a moment ago that they are remarkably stable, but there is a little bit of a story here. And I'm going to run it by you. And I'd like to see how you react to it. So going all the way back to last summer, Joe Biden's job approval was was pretty even, about, about half the country approving, about half the country disapproving. So when we also look at right track, wrong track, same kind of pattern. It's still negative territory when we go back a year, but not quite as strongly as now. And then what you see across your surveys, and we can, I'll put the link for this in the show notes when we put out the pod on this. But what you see is really, really stable numbers, actually the exact same numbers for for Biden approval and for right track, wrong track, with the exception of your January survey. So what it looks to me happened here is kind of the the, the story of the, of the Biden presidency. There was an afterglow. There was a honeymoon period after Biden was elected and people were relatively upbeat about perhaps the end of the pandemic. We were all excited in 2021 about the hot vax summer. That did not come together. And then around the Afghanistan withdrawal, which did not go well, there was a really bad August for Joe Biden. And there was a sense in the electorate that things were not coming together. Things were not under control. And the electorate began to turn. This was around the time that we were getting a lot of these Democrats in disarray media narratives starting because the Build Back Better bill wasn't coming together. We see this downward trajectory for Joe Biden and for people's sense that things were on the right track that crested in January of this year. And then we saw a slow rebound to what now seems to be kind of a a steady state. Is that more or less the way you see things. I think that that's a perfect story, as you say, for what's happened. So on Afghanistan, it was definitely a trigger. It might not be the reason that people don't vote for Maggie Hassan, but it certainly was something that all of a sudden you felt or voters felt it wasn't as strong a presidency as they had thought, and it was weakness. And it started to turn. I often liken political favorabilities a little bit to lead poisoning. You start to get it over time and it slowly comes to you. It's not necessarily one negative thing that turns you against an elected official. It's You slowly get it. But once you have it, it's very hard to get rid of. And I think that negative ratings for someone like Joe Biden are going to be hard to ever shake as we go into the next presidential election, and they've been hard for him to shake. We we know now that today he is signing bill on inflation and climate change, and there's a lot of enthusiasm in Washington, D.C. about it. I would suspect that it probably won't even move the needle as far as his favorability here in New Hampshire. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that people in Washington, D.C. believe that when they pass things, it immediately changes the landscape. But most of us who are going to the grocery store and buying food and going to the gas station don't see they and they won't see any change tomorrow or the next day. So they don't react that way. Let me push that point 
a little bit, because one of the interesting things about this level of stability that we see in your polling data is if you look at that marquee race, Senator Maggie Hassan running for re-election, you also see some fair st- stability in her approval rating with kind of that same pattern, a dip in your January survey. Who knows? Maybe that was the particular sample you got that side. It could be a little bit of statistical noise, but otherwise a remarkable degree of stability. And as you pointed out in our last show together, that comes against a backdrop of her spending an awful lot of money on paid media, on on advertising, supporting her re-election campaign. And so one thing you could conclude from that is her money is not making much of a dent in the race. Of course, we, we it's hard to prove a negative. We don't know what the alternative reality would be if she wasn't spending that money, but it's it's hard to make a case that it's making a major impact. I guess the question for you is back to this question of the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other atmospherics coming out of Washington recently. What Democrats are getting excited about is actually, I'm going to quote from the conservative columnist, Andrew Sullivan, who wrote on Friday, and I'm quoting from him here, we've moved the dial on climate change in historic fashion. We've beefed up the semiconductor industry. We've secured lower drug prices for Medicare, and we've raised taxes on the very rich. In the last year, we've passed bipartisan infrastructure investment, withdrawn from the sinkhole of Afghanistan, and helped stymie a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what's striking about all this dark Brandon energy, if you don't know what that meme is, look up your memes. What's striking about all this dark Brandon energy is its pragmatism, moderation, and lack of polarizing melodrama. So my question for you, Neil, is maybe a specific piece of legislation won't matter and won't register consciously in people's minds. But it seems from the Maggie Hassan example, like what matters these days in politics is the overall earned media environment, what people are imbibing from the news and 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 from the atmospherics on social media around them and what they're going to be getting in the next few months what they've been getting in the last month or two is just a drumbeat of really good upbeat news for democrats do you see that and do you think that that is potentially a factor that you will start to pick up in your polling numbers in the next month or so well, you're right about the fact that she spent a lot of money, and I say she groups on her behalf. We don't know whether or not if they hadn't spent that, if she would be at 25%. But the point is, is that it doesn't seem to have moved the needle. All of what Andrew Sullivan wrote there, how come it hasn't changed the psyche of Americans right now who 68% believe the country is on the wrong track? For some reason, there you can point out that the sky is blue, but if people feel that the sky is dark and rainy, they're not going to change their mind. And I think that that's part of what's going on here with her. Now, one of the things with resources is, you know, we pulled these primary challengers, these Republican primary challengers. They have three weeks to go, and it looks like Don Bolduc probably is going to pull this out. And if he does all of those Hassan resources are going to come down on him and define him right out of the gate in a way that is probably not palatable to general election voters. So Mm. although the resources haven't necessarily transmitted on the plus side for her, 
She's got 7% here that she's got to make up. But she, the point is, is that she could actually put in enough resources to make her opponent so less desirable than she is that voters choose her. And I think that that's what the plan's going to be. So the dollar spent right now might not have made it such a positive difference in her numbers. The dollar spent after the primary defining her opponent will. That's interesting. I mean, the the other cut I guess I could take at, at your findings here is I think the situation has changed when it comes to presidential approval rating. I no longer think it has the meaning that it traditionally held because it's become so hard absent that brief honeymoon period for Joe Biden. It's become so hard in this hyper polarized environment for presidents to hold on to a positive job approval rating because presidents are sort of the avatar for all of the things that we're unhappy about. And the 68% wrong track number that you find, you and I talked about this in our last recording. If you go back and look at the Gallup poll, which is for the last 50 years has tracked their version of this right track, wrong track question, what you find is that the average level of wrong track in America is about 68%. People are unhappy at baseline and they tend to glom all this stuff on, especially in this polarized environment, to their recognizable political leaders. I suspect that that's what we're seeing with Joe Biden. And I suspect that we're seeing a version of that with Maggie Hassan. What's interesting to me, and your survey is picking up some of this, is that when you look at polling averages around the country, you have seen recovery for Democrats in the last few months on the generic congressional ballot. When you ask people, do you generally prefer Republicans or Democrats to represent you in the next election. And you're seeing this several point movement toward Democrats in the national numbers. And you're finding the same thing in your numbers. And that's interesting to me because that would sort of fit in with the story that I'm weaving here that, yes, individual politicians that are recognizable become sort of the the scapegoat, the focal point for all of voter unhappiness and anger. But when you ask the more generalized proposition about how you're feeling about the parties, you would expect some of the positivity to start to be reflected, or maybe it's a thermostatic reaction to the Dobbs ruling. What do you make of that? What do you make of that movement that you're seeing on the generic ballot? So in January, the Republicans had a 6% generic ballot lead here in New Hampshire. Then it went down to four. Now it's at three. So it's it's dropping and leading, going in the direction of the Democrats, even though the Republicans still have a slight lead. I, I do suspect that some of this is because of the Dodds decision. And I think that it's just that the Democrats are identifiable as the pro-choice party. I think that Governor Sununu here, who is pro-choice, would disagree with that. But they are. And so I think some of the energy, I mean, we're picking up the energy in a strong way in other parts of the poll. So where's that energy going? And is that a an issue where a Democrat or an independent voter is saying, well, I don't like the direction of the country. I don't like the economy. I don't like this, but I'm going to vote for Democrats because of Roe versus Wade. And I think we are seeing some of that. All right, Neil, you were just saying that what you think is going on is, A, the Dobbs decision 
put a little wind in Democrats' sails because they're identified as the pro-choice party. And B, maybe, I was suggesting, maybe some of the drumbeat of progress coming out of Washington is setting up an earned media atmosphere of, oh, now instead of Democrats in disarray, we're seeing Democrats making some progress, getting some stuff together. I guess it's that last point that I want to push you on. And then I do really want to talk about the way you approach the abortion question, because it's very thoughtful and very interesting. In terms of the general atmospherics, I'm leading the witness here because I wrote in Newsweek that I thought the Inflation Reduction Act was potentially a big deal because it gives it would not on its own change the trajectory of American politics, because I agree with you. People don't pay that much attention to legislation, but it gives Democrats an answer to the question, what's our story here? And rather than the Democrats in disarray narrative, now they have a we're doing something. And so if there is positive movement, as there has been in terms of gas prices, food prices, the things that are really on American voters' minds, now Democrats have a story to tell of, well, we've done X, we've done Y, we're making progress, we're getting it done. And it's just a much better story. It's better to have something than nothing. So to what degree do you think that factors into the movement you're seeing in the generic ballot? Or do you think this really is all Dobbs decision driven? I think that the timing of this poll is sort of at the same time that they were passing this legislation. So it's a little bit tricky to to guess a little bit on this. And of course, you have a signing ceremony today. So what's what is the impact? But I, I do think for Democrats who are on the ballot, it does give them an answer to the question, what are you doing about it? Because everyone wants to know, hey, I paid a lot for my eggs. What are you doing about it? And it does give them an answer. Whether or not it's going to change the polling numbers for some of these Democrats who are upside down, I remain to be convinced. I do think that an abortion is an issue that an abortion or a lot of other issues like guns where the Second Amendment is, if you decide you're going to take something away, people get very motivated to vote. And I think we saw that in, a, in a, an election two weeks ago, where an overwhelming number of people voted down further restrictions. And I think that in New Hampshire, we're going to see that. And I think it's bleeding out into this poll. So I think that the generic ballot has a lot to do with abortion. And, and I think, again, it could be the the thing that basically allows Hassan to come back from the abyss and win, not because she's overwhelmingly popular, but because the other person is not popular and is going to take away certain rights that people don't want taken away. Let's dive in then on the way you've handled the abortion question in this polling because it's unique. I think it sets you guys apart with the approach that a lot of pollsters have taken. It's very intentional. And I think it's really, really interesting. And yes, we're going to we're going to go into the weeds a little bit here, but I think it's worthwhile because what you do is rather than just ask sort of the traditional set of questions on this, most of the time polls choose one version of this or another, maybe a couple of them. But you ask a series of, it looks to me like five questions on abortion. And 
you very specifically sequence them to tease out people's views on abortion and how they're going to behave politically and in terms of their voting on abortion. So first of all, could you just tell our listeners what approach did you take and why? So on this question is very interesting. And the fact that people may say, well, I'm mad about the decision and, and, and leave it at that. And so you think, well, okay, they're, are they going to vote though on this issue? So you have to really parse this out and not just ask them if they're pro-choice or pro-life or what is the motivation here? Are you more motivated to vote on this one particular issue? And 58% of people who are pro-choice are much more likely to vote based upon this issue. And that really means that you've got a lot of energy on that one side, that pro-choice voter, versus it makes no difference to 69% of pro-life voters. So it's it's what we're parsing out here is that pro-life voters are saying, okay, they sided with us. Now we can go home. And pro-choice voters are saying they sided against us and now I'm motivated, much more motivated to vote. And so trying to, to, to figure this out with a series of questions, we even come down to, do you believe that access to abortion will become more restricted in New Hampshire in the future? And obviously, the reason you're asking that is to see whether or not, well, if they don't do something, it's going to be more restricted in the future. So you've got to keep sort of peeling away the onion with these questions and seeing, again, how motivated they are. I think that most of us heard from when this decision came down, there was a tremendous amount of media attention. There was a tremendous amount of discussion about it in different places. But whether or not that same person who's upset about it is going to go to the polls in November, based on that one issue, disregard everything else, is very, very important and could be, it could be the real reason the Democrats keep the Senate, in fact. One of the things that you alluded to earlier is that all the caveats of polls apply with your poll and with any poll. They're a snapshot in time. They're subject to a margin of error and the idiosyncrasies of how each individual pollster approaches things. And of course, there are all kinds of biases that that can creep in based on how questions are worded. And so the best thing to do when you're looking at an individual poll is ask first, how does it compare to the same poll done over time. And we've spent a lot of time in this discussion doing that when it comes to the high-level atmospherics of right track, wrong track, Joe Biden's approval, Matt Kasson's approval, et cetera. And that provides some, some correlation there to an overall story that hangs together and makes sense. The other thing you can do is you can look at other polls and see, do your results here individually kind of line up with evidence that you can draw from elsewhere? And does it all hang together into something that just generally makes sense politically? The point of all of that preamble is, I think you, you've done that here and your results do hang together with evidence that we can draw from other, other places. So first of all, the first question you ask here is, broadly speaking, which of the statements below best describes your political position? On, a, on abortion. And so you're parsing out here, not individual views, but how people are, you're getting at how people are going to behave in elections. And you give right, people- their personal opinion. Right. And parse that out. And then that is very different than their political behavior. 
Exactly. And so, and you do these questions back to back and you also give people different flavors here. You give people on this, on this question that I just outlined, you, you give people, I vote only for candidates who support abortion as a right. I generally vote for candidates who support abortion as a right, but I do make exceptions all the way down through I vote only for candidates who support a fetus's life as a right, very carefully worded. And what you find there is that you could characterize people's answers, kind of the first two flavors of that, as 49% pro-choice, 23% pro-life, and 29% unsure. And it's the distinction you just drew that I think is so important, is that in terms of how people are feeling right now, Post Dobbs, in terms of their political behavior, how they intend to vote, you're finding that about half of your survey intends to vote in a pro-choice manner. And that's distinct from your findings on people's personal views, where you find, again, with the same like flavors that you offer people. I believe abortion should be allowed with no restrictions, with some restrictions, should not be allowed, but under narrow circumstances, yes, you find 71% pro-choice. That difference, 71% pro-choice in terms of people's personal views versus 49% in how they intend to vote politically, that is right in line with what traditionally pollsters like you have found, is that people can say that they're pro-choice, but the proof of the pudding in elections is there's always a gap there. There, It's always less of a potent issue for the pro-choice side than people's personal views would make it seem. Except, except, except in this election, what you find is that now the voting energy is distinctly, like you just said, distinctly on the pro-choice side in terms of people's motivation to show up on the basis of this ruling. So you've ended up developing a very rich picture of the electorate in New Hampshire in terms of their personal views, their voting behavior, and the specific tie back to the Dobbs ruling. Absolutely. So I think you summed it up perfectly. I mean, one of the the factors that you do here is you don't just come out and say pro-life or pro-choice. You can come out and ask on abortion, are you more or less likely to support someone who supports abortion as a right, for example? It's a different way of asking it, but you parse it out. There is a gap there. It's rather interesting. People's personal opinions versus their political opinions. But this abortion issue is very hard. Even with five different questions and all of the data that we've gotten, it's still, I think most people would say it's a question mark as to whether or not For example, here's some other factors that will weigh in as the general election. Will a candidate spend an enormous amount of money messaging the fact that this is something that's going to get taken away from us if we don't act? If you don't vote, this is going to... And so it reminds voters that this is on the table. Or is this an issue that's not going to be coming up in an election and people not wouldn't forget about it, but they're not going to be as motivated because they're not getting messages to this effect? So it's really, I think, a question mark as to whether or not what impact this is going to have on this midterm. And we may never really know unless we were to do some very comprehensive exit polling as to how many people really got up that morning and said, I don't like this incumbent candidate and I don't like the environment in America, but I'm going to go vote for this 
incumbent candidate because they are, let's say, pro-choice. And right. That. Yeah, I mean, it's it is a question mark. And I think what's particularly interesting about it is we always talk about and you just kind of alluded to this yourself in politics, the, the power of something being taken away, what what behavioral economists would call loss aversion and how that's so much more potent than the promise of something you might get. And so you find, interestingly, interestingly, you also parse this out, that voters in New Hampshire, in your survey, don't really think that the future of abortion is going to become more restricted for them in New Hampshire. You, you find a third of voters, it really, it breaks down almost exactly evenly. A third of voters say, yes, it will be more restricted in the future. A third of voters say, no, it will not. And a third of voters say, we don't know. And so that doesn't appear in your poll to be a specific motivating factor, that people are afraid that their own rights are going to be restricted where they live. But what they're also telling you is we're angry about this. We are motivated to go vote because of it, and we are against it. And that kind of suggests to me, and I, I want to try this out on you, that maybe the power of this issue isn't just in the abortion issue itself. Maybe it becomes a signifier for the larger battle that the parties seem to be waging right now. Each party in recent months has seemed to be trying to give its own version of the following message. We're working on the things that you care about. The other party is extreme and crazy. And it, it, it seems to me like the abortion issue has now become a proof point for Democrats in that argument. Now they have the legislation that they've passed and they can say, we're working on the things you care about, but these other guys, whether or not you think your own individual access to abortion is under threat, these other guys are extreme and crazy. All right. That's my thesis. What do you think? I think you're exactly right. So if, if the, the restriction is in Texas, a New Hampshire voter may say, this is what it's all about, is that restriction by these crazy people in Texas. And I also think that there's a bit of gender in here that it's a narrative that the party doesn't necessarily, the, the Democratic Party does listen to female voters to some extent. And that's always been true. And I think that there's a little bit of bleed out on that issue as well. Mm. It's a, yeah. and, and you'll hear about, you see this a little bit in the polling, but you'll hear people describe it as a women's issue. A lot of people disagree that it's a woman's issue, but certainly it's, it, it also helps the, the Democratic Party tell the story that they are the party that is helping women. Mm. And defending women. Although, and it's and it's interesting because it would seem like it could cut both ways. You could you could focus on the issue in terms of its specific impact and its and its specific nature, because people do seem in your survey to care about this issue specifically, but you can also use it as part of this larger narrative of we're focusing on the things you care about. They're crazy. And 
I, I just point that out. If I'm, if I'm not, if I'm not giving away the store here, I mean, look, this is from a race from 12 years ago that no one cares about. And I don't think any party to this would object to me telling this story. But when my former boss in Congress, Paul Hodes, my co-hosts sometimes on this show, was running for the U.S. Senate in 2010 against Kelly Ayotte. Early on, when I was running consultant calls as part of our political consulting team, our pollster was John Anzalone, who is now Joe Biden's pollster. And the way he put it at the time was, look, we're running up against a a, a Republican who voters see as relatively moderate. Our job is to make voters see that she isn't set apart as a kind of moderate New England style kind of Republican. She is one of these Southern extreme crazy Republicans who you hate. And it seems to me like this is just rerunning that playbook. Abortion gives the opportunity for Democrats to do that all over again. And I think you've hit the nail on the head for what we're going to see after the September 13th primary. What we're going to see is that the incumbents are weak. The environment is weak, which we see in this poll. And then the next thing you're going to find is that those people who are running against us are crazy. And they're going to be able to define that pretty quickly with some of their statements. So I think what what they did 12 years ago or attempted to do 12 years ago and your description there is probably what's going to happen again uh, on the 14th of September. Except this time it might work because it didn't work that well for us in 2010. Maybe it'll work this time. And and to that end, let me ask you about the House races, because right now, all of the general election prediction models are kind of coalescing around this view that the U.S. Senate, about a 50-50 proposition. Maybe the Republicans will take it over. Maybe the Democrats will hold. On the House side, the story is a little bit different. It is definitely the Republicans with the serve. They've definitely got the huge advantage. The 538 model is currently saying 79% chance of the Republicans taking over the House. But the trend lines are in Democrats' direction. Things have been getting better. Now, of course, when they're as bad as they were a couple of months ago, there's only one direction to go, really. But nonetheless, there's been substantial movement in Democrats' direction. Now, there are two House districts in New Hampshire. The second congressional district held by Annie Custer, which is slightly more Democratic leaning. And the first congressional district currently held by Chris Pappas, also a Democrat, which is pretty darn dead even. And in fact, swung back and forth between the two political parties in, what was it, five consecutive elections during the, the 2010s. So it is the it is the quintessential bellwether district what do you make of the prospects in those two districts based on your polling numbers okay we have weak incumbents one custer has never polled very well but to her credit she has won election after election and then we have pappas who has a local connection to manchester and very strong with that but here is the whole factor who is who are they putting up against these candidates. And we get back to the same thing we just discussed with the U.S. Senate. They, the parties now are leaning towards sort of Trumpian Republicans. 
And those Trumpian Republicans, they deny the election results and things like that. And is that going to be palatable to general election voters? And I think that's a big question mark. Because on the generic ballot, if you just, I call it the Tom Brady thing. If you, if you say, would you like to be my, if you ask my wife, would you like to be married to Neil Levesque or somebody else? She always thinks of Tom Brady. So the point is, is that do you favor the incumbent or somebody else? And you always think the perfect person. But parties don't necessarily nominate candidates that are going to be palatable to the general election. And so what we're seeing in these two CD congressional districts is that the parties may bring out someone who is not palatable. And in the second congressional district, again, you have weak incumbent, but the district leans D and certainly is not a Trump district. And so you could have a candidate come right and win in this district and and not and just go down in flames almost immediately. And what we're seeing in that primary is very different than the first CD, which is the leader has 12%, the second person has 10, and the next person has eight, three candidates. That means nobody knows really who these people are. And so when you have an incumbent who can raise money, who has the financial ability, in three weeks, when one of these people wins a primary, instantly they're going to be defined by the resources on the other side as what you said earlier that crazy person. And so the Republicans here, they, they're they in a tough uphill fight, even though it looks like they're in a good position. So just to sum all of this up, what you're finding is, first, a pretty stable political environment so far. Second, a little bit of movement, though, on the generic ballot towards Democrats that may be largely driven by the Dobbs decision, but may also begin to include some of the positive progress coming out of legislation in Washington. And finally, a beginning of a political narrative that we're going to see going into the fall. Republicans saying, inflation bad, aren't you unhappy? Vote for us for a change. And Democrats having two options. One is to aim at the specific candidate they're up against, who may, in many cases, turn out to be some kind of a a Trump person who voters can't generally accept. The other option is to say, regardless of who that opponent is, we're going to tie them to the most extreme elements of the Republican Party that voters don't like. And we're going to say, you vote for this, you get all of that, better stick with us. I completely agree with that assessment. Hey, look, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to stop you on. I agree with everything you just said. I've learned that in politics. When someone's <laughs> agreeing with you, just say, well, that's great. That's all the time we have. And that's what I'm going to do to you right here, because it is time to wrap up the show. Neil Levesque, Executive Director, St. Anselm's Institute of Politics. Thanks so much for all of your insights and for this absolutely outstanding poll. Thank you, Matt, for digging down. That was great. 